Hello and welcome to The Dialogues, the interview series about people with type 1 diabetes, for people with type 1 diabetes and with people with type 1 diabetes, where we talk to you, your doctors, nurses, nutritionists, CGM experts, entrepreneurs and pretty much anyone with interesting perspectives and insights in the world of type 1 diabetes. Make sure you subscribe and make sure you give us feedback and let us know what you want to know. We're brought to you by Not Just a Patch, the patch designed to keep your CGM stuck on you. Not Just a Patch gives 10% of all profits to support insulin access for all. Visit notjustapatch.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get 10% off your next order. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Jack, it's nice to meet you, man. Hey Pete, yeah, well, look, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to uh, excited to chat. Around the world sailor, masters in engineering, type one diabetic, a little bit of time in investment banking. Have I missed anything there? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, uh, probably something I should clear up early on. <laughs> I don't have a master's degree. <laughs> okay. I dropped out of uni after a year. <laughs> I tried. It looks good on the I LinkedIn tried. profile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's getting into uni that's the important bit, right? <laughs> right. I hear engineering is is a pretty big challenge. So just the fact that you actually got in there and started it probably in itself is um, pretty impressive. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So um, what have I missed there? Do you want to sort of fill in some of the gaps with, with regards to your bio, just for the listeners? Um, you've got a, you've got a pretty interesting story for a for a young lad. Yeah. Thanks. No, I mean. It's, it's actually relatively simple. You know, the, the, <laughs> the whole of my life revolves around, kind of revolves around sailing. And it has for, has for as long as I can remember. I started sailing when I was six. Um, not a family thing. Usually, certainly in the UK, it comes from, it's kind of a family sport and you introduce to it through your parents. But I just kind of stumbled across it. I was taken to a local open day and absolutely fell in love with the sport. And so it's always been my, my thing and my passion and, you know, went from starting out and it being this like adventure, this, you know, jump on a boat when you're six years old and you're on your own and you're totally responsible, you're totally accountable. And that's pretty cool when you're six. I don't know what else you can do where you have that kind of responsibility. So I fell in love with that. And then, you know, super quickly, it was about racing and going faster. And so, yeah, my, my whole life's been about trying to, you know, trying to do that and trying to be as good as I can be at racing, sailing boats. And then trying to make a career out of it. And, and a big part of that is the technical side. So hence the, you know, going to study engineering. And I left my degree because I was offered a position on a professional sailing team. So that was kind of an obvious choice. Uh, it wasn't that I didn't like the degree. Um, yeah. And then, and then obviously I was diagnosed with, with type one. And so that became a big part of the picture, but they all kind of slot together. And, you know, that, that for me, that like engineering approach, that, analytical approach that I take to sailing and I take to kind of life and I take to living with type one <laughs> it's kind of what defines me so yeah that's me and <laughs> three simple things it's you know it's um it's actually fascinating I think to um think about the way I mean because of the analysis that's required right for us type one diabetics to figure out what it is we need to do next right 
um, to, to, to keep in range. Um, and, it, and I think like the, you know, one of the fascinating things for me being in and kind of in, in immersed and engaged in the community is, is kind of getting to know uh, how people manage it. You know, like for me, I'm, I'm pretty maybe too laid back, right. When it comes to it, like I tend to kind of, I don't get stressed about being high. I do get a bit stressed about being low, um, but like it's not something that weighs me down and I probably could be a lot more analytical with it. Do you want to give us a bit of insight into, you know, if you are that kind of analytical type of person, how that how that plays out from a, in a type one context? And we've jumped massively forward here because, yeah, there's a whole heap of stuff that I want to cover, but, you know, seeing as though, that you, know, you triggered me there. Sorry for the pun. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but let's let's go down that path. No, that's that's good, and, and I kind of like the way you phrased that because that's that's actually made me think on the spot. I, th- I think I'm kind of laid back about it, like you are. You know, I don't I don't get too stressed about it. I think that's important for me because the stress is is always a negative thing and it spirals, and and so I'm. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I say I'm super analytical about it and I'm an analytical person. I'm good at maths. I like solving problems. But I'm not like writing down or recording every bit of data and going away and analyzing it in the evening and figuring out what I should have done better. It's more intuitive than that for me. And it, it feels like a kind of, you know, my approach is, and everyone's approach is unique, right? And different things work for different people. We kind of all know that in the community. But my approach is kind of like a, yeah, a continuous science experiment, but it's a pretty relaxed one. And if you think about, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna jump sideways again into the kind of you know the, some of the technology stuff I've been involved with, and I've been doing some work um, developing systems for my boat in the AI space. And you know, it's kind of commonly understood that the human brain is the best the best AI AI we have. And, and it's very good at taking huge amounts of data and making quick, quick decisions, quick informed decisions. And so I kind of I kind of rely on that a lot. You know, I, I use my gut, I use my intuition to tell me, you know, what's going on with my body, what's been going on. You know, my levels are running a bit high and I've been doing things that, and the kind of standard response isn't what I expected to. Then I'll make a quick adjustment you know, not based on writing down all the numbers and analyzing, you know, my carb ratio has changed to this because of this factor. And then it's not like that. Yeah. It, it's a, it's an informed guess always within the kind of safe bounds of, you know, I don't do anything stupid and don't change my dosing too quickly or too aggressively because <laughs> I wouldn't be very smart. But uh, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. My, um, my wife was, We've actually gotten to this this thing. Like my wife cooks dinner. She probably cooks she cooks dinner maybe five nights a week. Um, she loves cooking, uh, and I love her cooking as well, even though I'm a good cook. Um, but we've gotten to this thing where like she'll cook, and I'll be like getting ready to eat, and I'll be like, and it's just I've just developed this saying of like, what's the GI sitch? <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, last night I was like, what's the GI sitch? And she um, picked up the packet of like vermicelli, and she like read out the carbs, and I, and I was like that means nothing to me. Like, and she's like, well, that should mean something to you. And I'm like, I know I I probably should count my carbs because I think there is a, a cohort of people out there who are big carb counters and very precise in the way that they will do that. And I've never done it. It's always just been like, 
I'll try and remember, you know, the impact of foods. And I think it's because I don't want to get weighed down by the need to be that level of, have that level of consciousness and that weight on my shoulders to, to be thinking like that. I'd rather kind of take it as it comes a little bit and, you know, fly by to the seat of my pants, you know, so to speak. Definitely. And I also think that, that a big function is how your life looks. So, and, and carb counting is great. Don't get me wrong. It's an, an epic tool to have and it's, it can be pretty effective. The reason I don't use it, and, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but the reason I, I do use it, I just don't use it aggressively. Yeah. You know, I use it to kind of inform rather than to define is because I don't have enough routine in my life. So I'm always doing different stuff. I'm always putting different physical demands on my body, mental demands, emotional demands, and the number of different contributing factors to insulin sensitivity to carb ratio mean that it's actually not that useful for me to, to carb count because something's changed. Mm-hmm. So the more intuitive approach I've found, and I feel pretty lucky that I kind of, I've always managed my diabetes quite well. You know, my HbA1c has always been really good. It's 38 more now. It's, that just kind of happens for me. And it's, it's a lot of like conscious work in terms of not forgetting about it and thinking about what the different factors could be. You know, I'm always scanning. I'm always adjusting. It's just not super calculated. Yeah. I mean, your, your early days as well, uh, which is, or it, which is helpful. I think there, there is like, I think sensitivity does not that I want to paint a bleak picture or anything. No, no, I'm, no, no. I'm, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from experience because it's been like 15 years for me and, and actually yeah. I'm just finding my sensitivity is decreasing at the moment and I'm, I'm working out and training um, enough and I'm actually surprised it's I'm surprising myself by, you know, the lack of sensitivity. Um, anyway, you can, you can worry about that in 15 years time. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you were talking about the six-year-old, you just quickly, uh, were there many other six-year-olds sailing at the time? Yeah. Yeah. It was a thing. It was a thing. And, and it's not, it's not a massive sport in this country for sure. But you know, when you go down the sailing club and you're six years old and you're in your boat you're not the you know the club boat that you kind of borrow and you're not the only one and there are nice groups of groups of kids doing it and then you know go on summer camps to the sailing club and kind of spend a week there and yeah, it was a really nice little sense of community and then and that progressed into certainly in the uk we're we're good at sailing in the olympics which means we have funding and so there are awesome youth junior pathways into this is dinghy sailing, so small boats, um, you know, into like structured training, structured um, camps and that kind of stuff. So I got involved with all of that from quite a young age, kind of from 13. And then, yeah, you, you make friends that are doing it and you're going through the going through the pathways at the same time. And it's really, really cool because you have this kind of shared, shared interest and it's outside of school or whatever else you're doing. And, you're all kind of passionate about it. There's a few that are pushed by their parents, but, you know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, definitely. So you're pretty immersed in the sport and, like, it was already a massive part of your life when the diagnosis came along. Yeah. I think that's, that's important. I, I always remember that because I think it was really important in my, like, diagnosis story. So I'd already left uni to pursue a career in pro sailing, to join a team and to go racing and, and the diagnosis was a pretty big shock. 
because I, I didn't know much about diabetes. There's no family history. Or, although I hear that quite often when I talk to people who've been diagnosed. What's that? No family history? Yeah, no family history and didn't know much about it. And it was actually a bit of a surprise. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So in terms of like what it meant to me when I was diagnosed, you know, the, the big questions were first, can I, can I do this as a career? Isn't anyone else doing it? And, and actually there are rules in place that say that there's certain races that I can't do with a condition like type one. But then on the flip side, it's been such a passion for me for so long. And I was so, I describe it as being so far down the rabbit hole of this is what I want to do. That when I hit that hurdle, I was kind of like, and again, I feel lucky that I had this. It wasn't, this was just, just the mindset that I just landed with was, oh, it's not going to, there's no way it's going to stop me because I'm, this is happening. I'm doing this. And it's just, it's just another thing to deal with. So that, that the kind of positivity that came out of that and the drive to just get through it and to learn as much as possible and to figure out the solutions was uh, yeah, a big factor in, in coming out the other side of that diagnosis in kind of good shape. Talk us through the circumstances. So you, you were out, so you were out of uni, so you'd already, you're going full time into professional sailing. Yeah. So it happened when I was racing, just doing a, a race in the, in the Middle East in the Gulf of, um, Gulf of Arabia, Arabian Gulf. Uh, it's like a three week long kind of multi-stage offshore race. So pretty physically demanding, mentally demanding. And it was hot, you know, 40 degree ambient temperature in the day. So <laughs> all the normal symptoms, right? Excessive thirst, passing a lot of fluid, fatigue. It was really difficult to identify those things. It's difficult, I think, at the best of times because of the way that they, you know, when you look back on them, they can be pretty rapid onset. But when you're living through them, I think they're relatively gradual, certainly for me. And, and then combine that with the fact that I was doing this race where I'm like, of course, I'm drinking a lot of water. It's 40 degrees in the day and I'm pushing my body. Of course, I'm fatigued. Of course, I'm tired. You know, nutrition's hard and probably burning six, 7,000 calories a day. And then it was only when I got back home after the race, amazingly, like, I was okay and realized I'd lost pushing 20 kilos and I didn't have 20 kilos to lose, so a quarter of my body weight. And then I was like, there's probably something else wrong. <laughs> Should probably go so it was, it was the weight loss that was the main, sorry, trigger? Yeah, yeah. It was, that was like the identifier, yeah. Yeah, because... The, you can be fatigued and you can be thirsty and but you can't justify that much weight loss in that little time really i think <laughs> consider yourself to be healthy and so what you were over there for three weeks and came back what did, did a test saw that you were high <laughs> what, what happened there oh man <laughs> no no it wasn't that simple i um and this is this is the example of how not to do it right <laughs> so uh I naturally got back and started Googling and the symptoms are pretty clear. I mean, they're pretty distinctive for a diagnosis of diabetes. You know, the thirst, the weight loss, um, the fatigue. Usually when you do a kind of Google search for a medical condition, it's bad news, but it came up with diabetes pretty quick. And, and I was quite convinced that that's what it was, but I just knew nothing about it. And so, Having then gone through that and then found also these, you know, all of these rules that said that I might not be able to compete if I had diabetes, because naturally that was the next thing I looked up. 
I wasn't super keen to, <laughs> to, to it wasn't denial. I mean, yeah. it probably sounds a bit like denial, but it, it wasn't. It was, I just didn't want to, I wanted to be sure that, that that's what it was kind of on my own, on my own, which was a terrible idea. And I didn't know if, you know, I didn't know if maybe, you know, read stories, reading stories about people being diagnosed with type two diabetes when they're relatively young. And I was like, Hey, it could be that. And it could be reversible and it could be. Um, so I kind of left it another couple of weeks and it kept getting worse. And then I decided that, um, I basically went home to my mum's place and got into bed for like 16 hours. And she decided I should probably go to the, go to the doctor. Yeah, they did. A- Were you talking to anyone at the time about, about the symptoms? I, I think I was, I mean, I think I was, yeah, I, I was definitely keeping my mum updated. Uh, I wasn't with her, but I'd sort of let her know what was going on. I think at that point, my friends had sort of started to notice that, you know, when you lose that much weight, you look a bit different. <laughs> um, but no one kind of pointed out that, no one kind of pushed me to to go and see someone about it. That's some, that's some independence, man. <laughs> yeah, in all the I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what else you'd call that, but I think independence is one thing anyway. Yeah, yeah, independence, yeah, stubbornness, <laughs> stubbornness. <A bit> stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> so then it just got to a point where you couldn't avoid it anymore. Yeah, yeah, I kind of rationalized it in my head. I was like, well, this is this, and this is probably what it is, and I definitely need some help at this point, or it's going to get dangerous. And so, yeah, I went to the doctor and went to my GP and took a Pricked my finger to the glucose test, and it was like 20, 24, 25, and pretty clear. And I wasn't surprised, I knew what it was going to be. I think my mum was quite surprised. She hadn't believed me when I said, I think it's diabetes. And then, uh, yeah, went into hospital overnight and went on a drip. And it was the most amazing thing. I don't know what your experience was like, but just going on saline drip overnight and just rehydrating, I basically inflated. And I felt amazing. I, I think I put on six kilos of just a fluid overnight. Wow. And it was kind of a, and it's kind of a relief. You know what it is and you know that it's, that suddenly you're, you're solving the problem. You've got insulin coming on board and you're rehydrating. And it's like, you go from this gradual, you know, and then immediately you look back and you're like, actually, yeah, how long has this been affecting me? And I've not, not been a hundred percent for, a relatively long period of time and suddenly actually I, and I can see a way out of this so that was cool yeah mine was kind of similar I was peeing a lot thirsty like craving sugar I'd lost weight but I, I was training for the London Marathon at the time and um I kind of like just thought of, and but I didn't have any fatigue and I felt completely 100% fine but I was talking to a mate back in Australia and I was like you know what his name's Doug and I was like Dougie I've been peeing a lot and like my eyesight went blurry actually. They wanted, I, I've always had perfect eyesight. My eyesight went blurry and they wanted to give me glasses. I'm like, what's going on? Like I've, all these symptoms. He's like, well, you've got diabetes or rabies. He was joking about the rabies, but um, so I went to Boots, got a test. It, it was like, couldn't even read it. It was so high. I went to the GP. She, um, she said, I can't believe you're even awake. You should not be yeah. awake with the, with the, with the readings that we've got. And I felt hundred percent fine. And so I said to her, She's like, you've got to go to the hospital uh, right now. And I was like, look, I've got a really busy day. I feel fine. I'll go after work. And she's like, either you're um, getting in uh, a taxi or I'm going to call an ambulance. <laughs> um, 
So I went, they gave me um, some, you know, they tested my arterial and gave me some insulin and a bit of a chat. And I, and I went on my way. Um, don't know why. That's insane. The same kind of physical. I just didn't notice it really. Um, but anyway, um, that must have been pretty, uh, I can imagine it would be pretty, pretty scary to think about like the potential impact of this thing that, you know, you've got now uh on your on your career on your passion like um what was going through your mind around that yeah one well, and look hey it's you know, i love these conversations because it's so cool to to hear everyone's different experiences with it and you know it just highlights how how different they can be you know even through diagnosis and, and it really is never the same and that's also what's kind of kind of intimidating about it yeah What's going through my head? I mean, being a being a, a professional sports person, you you kind of practice resilience every day, anyway. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording about you know being self-employed, and you you get good at being thrown curveballs, and you get good at trying to be objective about what the next steps are and you know I'm a big fan of having a plan and being able to change it and, and all that stuff and it's just like the ultimate lesson in that you know here's here's this thing that you didn't expect and yeah it could be detrimental to your dreams and to your career and, or it's just an obstacle and you just figure out how to how to dodge the obstacle or not even dodge it but how to Know, climb over it to to deal with it and and so again this is where i think i was lucky and i think i was lucky in this because of what we were saying earlier i was so far down this rabbit hole that <laughs> and yeah the, the stubbornness and the independence and whatever you want to call it of i didn't get didn't get bogged down by all those negatives and just blindly believed that i could figure out how to how to work with this big obstacle um, but, but that's, and that, and that thing for me is like the definition of resilience. And there's a lot of conversation in the world about things like resilience, especially in the moment and after the pandemic and resilience and mental toughness and all that stuff. And really you, you build those skills, you build those qualities by practicing them and you do it in small ways and you do it in small ways every day. And so, yeah, for me that that's come from sport has come from you know, a few things that happened earlier in my life and 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 now it's come from being diagnosed with type one and and learning how to you know manage that and, and still kind of chase after my dreams so i think i was lucky that that i, I kind of just landed on my feet with that approach um, but it's taught me a lot did it affect the direction that you were planning to go in like you know you talked about uh, being um races that you couldn't compete in were was there anything you were wanting to do that you can't do now yes and no it, it really made me question it and i explored a couple of different different kind of routes in the sport and and there are you know the sports divided into lots of different disciplines and the disciplines are all quite different and the ones that, that all i really dreamed of doing is this you know the round the world stuff the long distance stuff and um probably the solo stuff at that point as well it was 
But that for me was like the pinnacle of the sport. It's the, the ultimate challenge. Get on a boat on your own and race it around the world. And they're big boats, they're fast boats, and they're technologically advanced. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and that was where the clear challenges were, you know. Be on your own thousands of miles from help in an extreme environment. Probably going to be difficult with type one. So, but, you know, what I could look at, you know, I love, I just love sailing. So, you know, I could go back to doing more kind of coastal racing, inshore racing or racing with teams or, and I explored that in my head through, I guess, through the process of then trying to work with, I guess there were two parts of working through those challenges. One, one was believing myself that I could do it because it, it would be naive to just sit there and say, I've just been diagnosed with type one. I don't really know much about it. And I'm quite early on in my career of, you know, long distance solo sailing. I haven't even done it yet. <laughs> done it with small teams, but I've not even done it on my own. So it'd be naive to say, oh, I can definitely do it. I just need to convince them that I can do it. So a big part of it was convincing myself that I could get on a boat, go out into a storm and be okay. Um, and then the next, the next big part was, uh, yeah, you know, working with the organizations and working with doctors and convincing them that I'd be safe to do it. And so through that process, it, it wasn't a clear, like, yeah, because, because of having to, having to work with myself through that, it wasn't a clear, oh, these, these are the barriers that I just need to break down. It was just a big question that I was working through for a couple of years. And, and in that time I explored you know, what, what other kind of sailing I could do. And, and, and in the end, that just ended up driving me even more towards, yeah, the, the long distance stuff, the solo stuff, because I realized how much that challenge means to me and even more so after the diagnosis. So the interest in, in solo around the world stuff was there pre-diagnosis? Yeah. I've always, you know, I was always kind of sucked into the, the around the world racing and the adventure of it and just just how big the I mean, challenge is it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a romantic notion i imagine it's very different in um in reality. yeah that's yeah that's a very good point and actually a lot of people get sucked into this romantic idea of sailing around the world and there are very few people who go and do it and enjoy it it's not enjoyable but you know enjoy the challenge of the whole thing it's an endurance sport it it's <laughs> yeah it, there's nothing really fun about it so yeah, the, but but the romantic idea, yeah, and and the uniqueness of it, you know, so few people get to do it. Always thought that was super cool. The the solo stuff, I didn't I didn't know, and that that was kind of a bit of a transition. And there was a big race called the Volvo Ocean Race, which is crewed around the world with a team, and that was actually what what I loved following when I was younger. And that was the that was the pinnacle of the sport in terms of technology. So they were designing the fastest boats, and then there was a bit of a shift in the sport and the those boats they changed the rules so those boats ended up all being the same so they kind of stunted the design and technology evolution of those boats and it shifted over to the solo stuff who ended up building the fastest boats and so i kind of moved a bit with that and then that opened my eyes to the solo challenge when it became the kind of peak because the technology stuff so important to me and i love the design process i love the innovation process so that kind of opened my eyes to all of that and then i realized when i did my first solo race i realized how much i loved that challenge uh, when it all kind of came together. Oh, is there any precedence with other around the world solos in Type One? No, no, nothing, nothing, you, nothing. Um, but I, I mean, I guess there are 
there's there are some precedents in terms of like endurance, right? I don't know if there's any explorers or um, I'm sure there's I'm sure I probably should have researched this. I'm sure if someone's climbed Mount Everest with Type One, uh, well, I think they probably have. Yeah. Did you tap into any any of those resources to actually who's it? Steve Redgrave? Well, he's a he's a he's a um, he's a rower, right? But uh, he's a rower, yeah. But I guess that, and that's very different. Um, what did you tap into to to get uh, inspiration or support or you know insight? You're you're totally right, and there and there are so many inspirational people living with Type One and doing amazing things, and whether that's yeah, physical challenges, adventures. Yeah, there are none in the sailing world. There, there weren't. Uh, and, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, there aren't that many people that get to go. And it's quite a small group of people that do that kind of racing. So it's not probably not a surprise that no one's done it with Time One before. Um, and also, you know, a side note to that is that the reason I can do it is because of the technology that we have now. And, and we haven't had that before. But yeah, you can definitely find it elsewhere. I kind of, I wish I'd seen more of it earlier on. And it's not that I didn't have access to it. I just wasn't, wasn't out there looking for it. Mm, interesting. And, and when I, in my route into, you know, there's so much stuff now on like, you know, Instagram and within the community and social media. And it's really cool because I think it is quite accessible. It's easy to find other people that are doing really cool stuff with type one and to learn from them and learn from their experiences and be inspired by them. My way into that wasn't, you know, it was when I started doing things like this and started chatting to other people with type one and that kind of brought me into through doing what I do and start sort of talking about my experiences with it that opened my eyes to the rest of the community, which is kind of sounds, <laughs> kind of sounds a bit like selfish and, but I just, it never crossed my mind that I could, that that was there and that I could kind of find it. And, um, yeah, so, that. yeah, that's, that's, I, I think that's interesting when I look back on it and I, I don't know if it would have, it surely would have helped, surely would have helped, but I just, it didn't, yeah, didn't, didn't even think about it. I guess you look for it when you, you need it, right? Yeah. Do you remember, I don't know, was it, were people, um, advising against? Yes. Yeah, I came up against a few. Came up against a few for sure. Were they speaking from any authority? Yeah, a couple of them were, which was hard. But I had a nice balance of people that were supportive from authority. And I'm also kind of used to I'm used to doing things that not everyone agrees with. You know, even even leaving university, I left left an engineering degree at Oxford University to go be a sailor. <laughs> so that, that got quite a lot of, what's the word, you know, <laughs> disapproval. Raised eyebrows. It raised eyebrows, yeah. And, and I'm quite comfortable with that. I always have been kind of happy to do my own thing and feel like I do it for the right reasons, and that's fine. But, yeah, I mean, very quickly, I'd managed to have a conversation after diagnosis with, it turned out that the, doctor, the doctors who were already advising the team that I was working with were the ones that had made the ruling for the big race to say that no one can compete with type one. So I managed to speak to them very early on and actually they were very open. They said, you know, we made that ruling on an individual basis. We will always make it on an individual basis. If you manage it well, and especially with the technology that we're starting to have more and more access to, then we see no reason that you can't compete. So that was really cool. 
massive tick in the box. Okay, there's some hope here. But then, yeah, I came up against it. And the first time I went to sail across the Atlantic, again, very lucky, I had the opportunity to sail across the Atlantic on big, fast trimaran, probably at the time, like top 10, 15 sailing, fastest sailing boats in the world, across the Atlantic, pretty big deal with a team. Um, and I very nearly, very nearly wasn't allowed to go because one of the guys on the crew had expressed concern about me being on the boat. And this is someone who had studied medicine and was certainly not a diabetes specialist, but you know, had some knowledge in the area. And so that was a really difficult position for then the skipper of the boat. And, and I totally would have understood if he just turned around and said, I can't take you. Uh, but it just started a dialogue and it was far enough in advance. We started a dialogue and I said, let me go and kind of prepare some more information for you so you can make a more informed decision. And I put together a big kind of like risk analysis of what could go wrong, the systems that I have in place to manage those risks. You know, what if my incident goes off or I have another batch and what if it gets too hot? Well, I have it insulated somewhere. And what if I go hypo, then, you know, I have have fast acting sugar and then worst case I have a glucagon injection and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just tried to cover all bases for him so he could make an informed choice. And then I left it with him. I didn't feel like I was in a position to push my own agenda on that because he's, and I know what it's like to be responsible for a team and for a crew. You're responsible. And so you take the full brunt of that. And so that, and that's one of the challenges of saying the crew is that I'm not just out there looking after me. I'm putting whatever additional risk I bring onto the other people around me. So I have to have to be confident that I can manage those risks and then I have to get them to buy into that. It's interesting, actually, like I, I had stigma on the list and, that, and that's not really an example of stigma, but it, it's like I suppose it's within the realms of potentially yeah. stigma. I mean, that's a that's a that's a decision that's being made, I think mostly on like what's best for everyone uh, whereas i think you hear you do hear stories about you know another story about a, a young girl who was wearing a cgm and like one of the netball referees wouldn't let her wear it while she was playing wow. or it was a pump or, or there was something you know like that and um you know someone you know she had to go off and she was upset and i and, and i actually i participated in a podcast last week about stigma and um uh, it's it's interesting, I suppose, just, you know, where the boundaries are on that stuff. As I said, that's not really an example of stigma, but in another situation, it could have been, right, if someone else speaks up and says, we don't want this person around because they have this condition. It sounds like you handled it well, though. Yeah, I think I think being rational about it is important and trying to empathise with, you know, their perspective on this thing they don't know much about. I think the stigma thing is really interesting, and, I'm again, I feel lucky that I haven't, haven't come across it. I don't think I've really come across it at all, unless I don't know about it. But there's a flip side to that, which I find interesting, which I've thought about a lot is, and I've, I've not struggled with it, but I've been aware of it, which is how you present yourself. And so I'm constantly fighting this battle of, and it's getting a bit easier now because, you know, I've got some, I've got more of a track record behind me and more confident in, the fact that I, I can do this and it's all okay. But, you know, trying to do something like 
what I'm trying to do and say around the world and do these big races with type one that's never been done before. There's a, a big part of me that wants to, that wants to and feels like I have to portray this. And I have to manage that risk in, in other people's heads. And so I need people to think that it's not a problem. I need people to think that I'm all over it. And we all know that it doesn't work like that. It can't be all over it the whole time. There's no such thing as all over it, is there? There's no such this. thing. So there's no yeah. there's no such thing for someone that's not living with type one. You know, you put yourself exactly. in an extreme well, environment and you and you you have challenges, you're not perfect the whole time, whether it's seasickness or just, you know, overdoing it and emptying the fuel tank and then being useless for twenty five hours, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have definitely in the past portrayed that and then come up against it when you're like, everyone forgets that I have this extra thing that I'm dealing with and that's fine. It's good that they forget it sometimes, but sometimes you need them to not forget. And that's totally on me. If I'm, if I'm convincing everyone that it's not a thing. And so that, that I found a really tricky balance to find certainly yeah. early on when, yeah. Cause you don't want to be like, Hey guys, I got type one diabetes. Right. But you also don't want them to come to a point where you're passed out somewhere yeah. and they're finding out that way. Right. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can, I can see how that it's a challenge, right? Um, how do you, how do you deal with it? I think ultimately it's that you know, you do it individually. For me, I do it individually, and it's great in everyday life to rely on. That this is the, the this is the challenge, right? So, on the boat, it's kind of easy because I I just take it on myself, and I have to do that, and I'm fine with that. And the additional like cost of just taking it all on myself is my thing to deal with, and as long as I'm confident about it. So I'm on top of it. But if I need some time out, if I need to, you know, if I need to not be involved in doing the sail change, because I'm hypo, then I tell the guys that's what's going on. I'm very clear about it and they're fine with it. But then the transition to real life is actually, that's not a very healthy way to you know, live with type one in everyday life. It's just to, you need a support network around you. You need people to get it and you need people who will be there with a, you know, hypo treat when you're having that moment rather than just take it all on yourself and be like, look, I'm good, I'll sort it out. And so I've definitely been, I've been prone to doing that and then felt the burden of that, you know, where I'll just, I'll just look after myself and no one kind of needs to worry about it. Uh, but that's, yeah, I don't think that's particularly healthy all the time. There's a time and a place. I get you. Um, so have you had any um, hairy moments? Uh, and so actually, have you, have you done a, have you done a solo around the world? Um, yeah, no. So I've done, so I've done solo across the Atlantic. And and that that's kind of the next biggest, and that's the second biggest solo race. Yeah, that's since the diagnosis. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that and that's kind of the second biggest solo race in the solo offshore world. And and then you go around the world next. So the the next round the world race is in twenty twenty four, and that's what I'm building my project for at the moment. Okay. How was your management in that particular race, the, the Atlantic? It was good. Yeah, it was good. These races are never simple. You. You know, talk about hairy moments. It's like a hairy moment every day. There's different scales of hairy moments. But if you think about the sport, we're taking design, we're designing to the limit. We're using new technologies that we're pushing to the limit. And then we're building them within the limit of what we can do. And then we take them and we push them to the limit in an unpredictable environment, a long way from help. You know, big waves, big winds, big storms, 
for a long period of time. So that transatlantic for me was 18 days. It was 18 days of you know, the first week we had actually typically very bad weather um, leaving northern France in November into we had three consecutive category two depressions, so big storms, 50 knot winds, eight plus meter waves. Um, so stuff breaks, stuff goes wrong every day. It's never what you expect. Um, there's always, yeah, there's always a hairy moment to contend with. And so you kind of throw, throw, you know, type one management into the mix and actually it's just, it's not like there's this whole other challenge. It's like, for me, it's just a part of the challenge and there will be hairy moments. And, you know, in that race, it was actually pretty smooth. Um, I had some hypos and I dealt with them. They just, I, I kind of, kind of live and race with this philosophy of thinking about it's a holistic approach to, to the whole system. So I'm not just thinking about how hard I'm pushing the boat. I'm not just thinking about how hard I'm pushing myself. I'm, I pull it all into one thing because we're kind of connected and I could be the limiting factor or the boat could be the limiting factor. And it becomes a management exercise. You basically have, because these boats normally would be sailed with like 10 people. So there's always, there are always too many tasks to complete in a given period of time. So it's about managing what those tasks are, which ones are the priority, whether it's getting 20 minutes of sleep or changing sail. Um, you know, not sleeping is good for going fast, but not if you're making bad decisions. So sometimes you need to sleep. So that becomes then top of the priority list. And I just throw the, the management of my condition into that, into that structure. Um, so if I'm having a hypo, then it becomes top of the priority list. Nothing mm. else matters unless there's something that's safety critical. And then I find a way to manage both. And, you know, pick so it, are there moments where you're literally sitting down, just dealing with the hypo, waiting for it to pass before you take on the next task? Would any of yeah. those moments in that 18 days? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're pretty rare. They're pretty rare. Um, but yeah, they can catch you out like they can every day. And so, so those are probably the hairiest moments, right? But in hindsight, they seem pretty simple because it's like, this is what's happened. I know how to deal with it. I've never been scared. You know, I've had a couple of hypos where you never had a serious hypo where you know, it's a, it's a been un- unconscious or yeah. you know, incapacitated. But you know, I've had a couple in the last five years where you sort of worry about that a little bit. Um, not on the boat. Not on the boat. And that's, again, just being strict. Um, you know, for having sensors is amazing, pre-programmed alarms and stuff. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know what it was like not to have a sensor. I imagine you would have had one since the beginning. Uh, no, I did did a couple of years on finger bricks. Oh, did you? Yeah, before the Libra. Actually, yeah, two, maybe three years. Okay. Yeah, in fact, that race, that race was one of the first times I really used the CDM because I knew that I had to for the race, but. I was self-funding and I couldn't really afford to do it in everyday life. Yeah. And uh, I knew I needed it for the race. So I, I kind of trialed them beforehand to get used to how it was going to work and tested it and tested it. Would do what I needed it to do on the boat and then um, I used it on the boat. <laughs> You're a great advertisement. Abbott should be um, supporting you in some way. Hopefully they are. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am a freestyle ambassador. <laughs> oh, good. And why then, why not Dexcom given it's got alerts? I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Libre prefer to um 
prefer, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, I prefer, I've tried both. But I would have thought in that situation, I, I wonder whether a Dexcom, because of the um, the alerting, did you, I, I imagine you've considered it. I have considered it. And I could actually talk for quite a long time on this. I have talked, <laughs> I've talked on this stuff, which I won't bore you too much. But there, I mean, there's so many things to consider. And again, when you put yourself in that environment, they all become apparent very quickly. So it's stuff like changing the sensor. You know, when you're bouncing off, you don't you don't bounce off the waves. You, you're doing top speeds of these boats is like 40 knots, 40 plus miles an hour. And so when you go off a big wave, you fly off it and then you hit the next one and you're pulling like two, three Gs in deceleration and you hit the next wave. So it's not a comfortable place to be. And then, you know, even if you're not wet on deck, so the thing's basically a submarine if you're managing to hide and we've got a lot, lot more protection than the, the modern boats now, uh, but then it's humid and you're working hard. And so just doing something as simple as a sensor change can be really difficult. And so only having to do that every two weeks with the Libra is awesome. And it's so simple with the, the applicator. Yeah, true. So that kind of thing is, is worth considering. And then for me, I actually like... Um, I like having to make an action to collect the data to scan mm-hmm. it because I think it's too easy for it's easy to have too much data and then it's just blend into the background. Whereas yeah, what do they call it? Conscious, a lot of fatigue. A lot of yeah, exactly. Because if you have to make a conscious action to scan it to collect the data, you've initiated an action already, and so you're ready to take another action if it's not where it needs to be. And so I like that. The alarms are really important, but, you know, Libra 2 with the alarms is great. Um, yeah, so things like that. Are you on the Libra 2? I am, yeah. Yeah, okay. since... Um, it's not in Australia yet. Kind of beginning of this year. Yeah, yeah. it's really cool. You I mean, like it's it? basically the same. Basically the same, but you get you get alarms, which I think is just wicked because there's no there's no real transition to like, a new piece of tech. So do you not need to... Do you need to take that action then now with the scanning? No. Yeah, so with Libra 2, you still scan it. Oh, you do? Okay. It's exactly the same, apart from the fact that, that it will ping you an alarm if you go out of range, your preset limits to your phone or to the reader. Okay. Um, so it's like a hybrid between, uh, I guess it's pretty smart what they've done in terms of you know, battery use, yeah. um, is that you still have to scan to collect, but I think it will actively, actively ping over Bluetooth if it's picked you up out of range. I think the next generation okay. sensor will be fully Bluetooth, which is the Libra 3, which also isn't released yet. Um, so it's a nice it's a nice middle ground, actually. I like it. Cool. What's next, man? Uh, how far away is the... So you said 2024? 2024, yeah. So the race is called the Vendée Globe, which is the yeah, solo, non-stop, unassisted around the world. Yeah. It's like the Everest of sailing. It's every four years. And I, I will be there. <laughs> I will be there in 2024. It's a massive project to put together. It's, you know, an extension of what I've been doing previously, but it's a bit of a step up because I have to step up to a bigger boat. So the budget's are bigger. You know, you need bigger sponsors and, and all of that stuff. So at the moment, we're kind of in like a build phase of that campaign. So we're, um, you know, looking at raising investment raised some investment already and then it's signing partners and sponsors and um, all of the work that it takes to it's basically like running a startup so that's yeah taking up most of my time at the moment and then of course i've got to get on the water and do some training as well and do some racing but 
you know, hopefully next year we're kind of on the circuit and then it's like three years of build up on the circuit and qualifying and, um, you know, racing for, for the kind of the circuit, which the Ronde Globe is like the pinnacle event at the end of the series. So yeah, super exciting time. So it's not like you're just preparing for one thing. You're doing lots of, there's lots of races and there's lots of little steps along the way to, yeah. to I guess what to, is there's the conditioning that you gain from that and and preparedness that you gain from that it's it's easy to think because of the narrative and the story you know because the around the world is such an incredible challenge it's easy to think that it's just about that but it's it's professional sport and it's a circuit it's just that there's that you know event at the end which kind of sits a little bit above all the rest and so you know there's a championship of which all of the races that we do every year and traditionally there's two major, major races each year. Um, and so, you know, time spent between obviously running the campaign, training for those races, doing those races. And then the boat spends a lot of time out of the water getting rebuilt, and, um, you know, between each major race and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so there's a story to follow every year. There's a race to do every year. And then the kind of overarching narrative is that we're preparing to peak for 2024 and for the one they go it's exciting, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's really it exciting. Is. And it's a massive yeah. challenge. I can't even really fathom, I guess, um, what you're taking on. Um, and it's inspiring, man. It really is inspiring that you're doing something that, you know, like the question I asked earlier, like, is there any precedent here? I think that, you know, you're sort of pushing some boundaries, which is, um, I think it's great for people to hear about this stuff in the community to kind of know that, to know what's possible. Um it, it is inspiring, man. Appreciate you uh, sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. No, look, thank you very much. Well, and it's been a pleasure to um, pleasure to share it and to chat to you and hear some of hear some of your thoughts as well. It's it's kind of interesting because it's it, you know what I do is professional sport, and professional sport is like <laughs> it's inherently selfish. You know, that, like there's there's no illusions. I'm I'm out here to do this because I want to do it because I want to race around the world and I want to be the best. But there's this whole other thing that's come from being diagnosed with type one and suddenly find this whole additional level of motivation. And, you know, it's not, it's not up to me to decide whether I inspire people or not, but what I feel like I can do is share my story and share the things that I've learned on the way and hope that in the same way that I learned stuff from hearing about other people living with type one, just living with it, you know, hope that people can, learn stuff from my experiences with it too and and that yeah that just gives me this like additional drive to to succeed or or at least just to try and um i don't think i would have found that anywhere else so i think that's pretty cool it is kind of cool you know thinking about having this condition you know like i before i started working in this space you know with this business um I wasn't that engaged in the community. Now I am. And like, you know, it's, it definitely adds, you know, it's, it's a two way street. I, I definitely get a lot from the community. I feel like I do contribute back to the community as well. And there's just something um, really positive about it, you know, which, which comes out of this, uh, this disease. Um, so I totally, I totally get where you're, where you're coming from. Um, where, where can people sort of follow your progress and like, any shout outs that 
you have, um, you know, advocacy wise or, you know, anyone that you want to finish off? Yeah, with? no, for sure. So, um, you know, all the usual channels, Instagram, Facebook, Trigger Sailing and Trigger Racing. Trigger Racing is my team. Um, online, so websites, triggerracing.com. And, um, yeah, try and, try and keep everyone up to date on, on the story and kind of what's going on. And share, share all the relevant stuff. Advocating, you know, such a big part of the story is the technology that I use. And so stuff like the Libra sensor is, yeah, it's a huge part of the story. I think for me, it's all about being authentic and those kind of relationships, they don't work if it doesn't work because I have to go and I have to go and use this stuff, you know, on the boat. And I genuinely rely on it as we do living with type one every day, but even more so I rely on it for <laughs> literally for my life at times. And so, um, yeah, I like to keep keep that kind of as organic as possible, and and just if I'm promoting that stuff, it's just through through what I'm doing and and through my story. So, uh, but yeah, all that stuff is so important, and, and it's of course critical to kind of bringing the whole project together as well. So, I'm um, kind of almost looking forward to 2024 a little bit, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, yeah, and, and I hope you follow along, and you know, we're going to do some pretty cool stuff. I think over the next few years, and put out some pretty cool content and you know, try our best to have an impact in the space. And hopefully by the time we get to that race, then um, people are primed for <laughs> following the story of the race and the highs and lows of it because they will be there. <laughs> totally. Appreciate your time, Jack. Yeah, well, look, thanks very much. And uh, great to chat. Take care, mate. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast to keep updated. Also, we love feedback and suggestions and we love to hear from you. So let us know what you think. We're brought to you by Not Just a Patch, the patch designed to keep your CGN stuck on you. Wishing you the loveliest of days. Goodbye.